This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our season sponsors, the Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, U.S., and London stock exchanges. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to open your account today. If I do this slightly to the left so I can see Mishi a little bit better, is that... No, I can definitely do that. Just, uh... Whatever, get. Sorry, to my left. Yeah, like yeah. yeah, that'd be better. Great. <laughs> Rachel, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so my name's Rachel Sarati. I am a documentarian and an educator based here in Boston, which is my hometown. And, yeah, I've spent the last 10-plus years now retracing and researching my grandmother's war story, which is how she survived the Holocaust. What's it like to spend so much time living the life of someone else? Hmm. (laughs) It depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't know if there's any person ever in my life who I will have this type of closeness that I have had with my grandmother since she passed away. The first time Rachel Sarati visited Israel was on a birthright trip. It was 2007, and she was a freshman in college. And it got me. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, what got me was hanging out with other young Jewish people whose identity felt similar to mine, which was like, we're Jewish, but it's like not this big thing. It was like my first introduction to like how to be Jewish without religion being a part of it but also just like Israel got me. Like, I loved it. I I felt like my soul was set free a bit in that country. And um, I just like fell in love. It felt like home immediately. And I, sometimes it's hard to put words on like why it felt that way. Um, But still to this day, every time I go back, I have a bit of an identity crisis of where I should be living. Cause I just, I feel more myself when I am there. The next summer, unsurprisingly, Rachel was back. I ended up signing up for this like religious trip and we got to Israel and they're like, you're going to seminary. And I was like, what seminary? <laughs> um, so I, I lasted like one day in seminary um, and I like think I was the rebel because I was like, you can see my shoulders. Um, Wait, what is seminary? Seminary is like the yeshiva for women. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyways, I ended up finding myself uh, in like a crash pad of sort of nomads in Nachalot for about three months bartending on Ben Yehuda Street. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, yeah. Um, So I was hooked on Israel. The following year, back in Philadelphia, Rachel and her grandmother Hannah started what they called storytelling sessions. I would go to her apartment and she would talk and I would write. Hannah told Rachel stories about growing up in Prague, about her parents, her brother, the war. And Rachel quickly discovered that her grandmother had also once been enamored with the land of Israel. She was absolutely, like, taken by the idea of being a pioneer when she was young. And, you know, the chapter of the youth movement, of the Zionist youth movement that she was a part of, 
was not like political or religious. It was much more focused on this idea of pioneering. And she like just daydreamed so deeply about, you know, establishing a kibbutz and, you know, working with her hands. And she just was like totally taken by that pioneering spirit. When the time came for Rachel to select a place for her junior year abroad, the choice was pretty obvious. And so I think when I got to Israel, I certainly had in the back of my head in every class that I took that this was an extension of her story. In the fall of 2009, Rachel enrolled at the Rothberg School for International Students at the Hebrew University. I remember that year with a lot of clarity in terms of like the different stages the year took. She lived in the dorms on Mount Scopus. And... Um, you know, I was suddenly meeting all of these people from other countries and from other places, and I just, like, felt alive. Before she knew it, Rachel made many new friends from all over the world. It was just a beautiful year of spending a lot of meaningful time with a lot of people who are really different than me. We knew that we were also living in a very complicated place, learning very complicated histories. Um, we knew that we were surrounded by stories that had a lot of nuance. And um, a lot of black, a lot of white, and a lot of gray all <laughs> swirled in together. In many ways, you like see the, the world that is Jerusalem and the world that is Israel, and everything is so heavy and so intentional in a way. But also, you know, sometimes it feels like we're living in like this accident of history, right? And suddenly, all of us were there from different countries, from different backgrounds, connected by these kind of like thin threads of interest or family history, and we're we're living in this place that the rest of the world cares so much about, and yet we just are. But of all these new friends, there was one guy who was going to change the rest of her life. Um, yeah, Sergio. Sergio. So Sergio and I became really, really close, um, and we ended up just, I don't know, just like kind of attaching at the hip for the year. Yeah. Rachel didn't know it at the time, but it would be Sergio, a Catholic Pole, who would become her closest companion in uncovering her grandmother's Holocaust story. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our story today, We Share the Same Sky, is the first episode and a half of a truly gorgeous documentary podcast created by Rachel, together with Erica Lance. The series takes us back and forth in time and in place. We'll be in Czechoslovakia in the late 1930s. We'll cross the Baltic Sea in the middle of the night. And we'll even visit war-torn Damascus. It's a dazzling, devastating, and deeply hopeful journey. So hold on tight. Here's Rachel. When the Second World War ended, I mean, we were extremely optimistic. That was still even before we heard 
terrible things that happened in the camps. But we thought that mankind had suffered so much that they would understand that war was not the answer. We had lived to see miracles happen on the sea. And you know, you were with me. When I'm standing there at the beach, looking at that water, uh, I see myself on the bottom of that sea. And I think of these thousands of people who try to come over the Mediterranean today and who are at the bottom of the sea. And uh, it is a shame upon our time that we let this catastrophe happen. I don't know how that shall be forgiven. In most ways, my grandmother lived an ordinary life. She had three kids, divorced once, married twice. She was a custodian, then a nurse, then a teacher. When her kids graduated high school, she rented out their rooms for extra income. She swam in any water she could, no matter how cold. And she ate fire. She'd do this magic trick where she'd take a match or a birthday candle, light it, and then stick the flame in her mouth to put it out. As a grandmother, she let all us grandchildren make her these disgusting concoctions that she would promise to drink. Turkey fat, milk, hot sauce, orange juice, juice of herring. We pour it all in. Then we'd run over to her, drop a little garnish on top, and in front of all our parents, present her with our cocktail. She'd take the glass and chug it, the whole thing, then hand it back, anything to make us laugh. Her face looked like mine, but older. In 2010, she died, in her bed, at home, surrounded by her family. It felt like a normal life, a good life. But there was something different about her. In the back of her head, she knew that she shouldn't be here. She could be in a ditch, in a grave, shot in the woods, buried in an unmarked plot of land. She could have sunk to the bottom of the sea. She could have poisoned herself. There were countless ways she would never have stepped foot in the home she died in. The idea haunted her, especially as she lay on her deathbed. She shouldn't be here at all. Today's date is March 25th, 1998. Uh, we are in Lafayette Hill, Pennsylvania, in the United States and the language of the interview is English. Please tell us your name, your date of birth, and your place of birth. My name is Hannah Sekel Druka. My maiden name was Dubova. The male get Dub, the female get Ova at the end. I was born July 2nd, 1925 in Kolin, at the time Czechoslovakia. Can you spell the name of the town that you were born? K-O-L-I-N. And where is this located? It's like 50 kilometers east of Prague. It takes like one hour by train. My grandmother sat down to tape this video when she was 73 years old. 
More than 20 years ago. She's sitting in front of the camera. It zoomed in on her, like a headshot. Her bookshelf is in the background. The interviewer's off screen. The video is a recorded testimony, and it sits in an archive of thousands upon thousands of testimonies of Holocaust survivors. It's four hours long. I knew a version of her story as a kid. I knew she survived the Holocaust, that she was the only one in her family alive at the end of the war, that she escaped over and over again. I knew her home was covered in paintings and photographs of Prague, masks and paperweights and postcards from different places, pictures of family she lost and those who came after. Every piece of art in her house had a story. Sometimes we would break her stories. Sometimes, at holiday meals, we knock over the precious stemware. The sharp edges of the thick red glass would cover the floor. The disposable pieces of her childhood memories laid out in front of her descendants. I took her stories for granted at the time, but that's the role of the grandchild, to accept what came before as normal. My grandmother was stateless for 17 years, and the last time she saw her family was when she was 14. I was 21 when she died, but in a way, I've spent more time with her after her death than I did when she was alive. Her history has become a delicate spider web, woven together by the thin threads of family stories passed from one generation to the next. In these stories, time isn't chronological, the retelling of family memories has become the history itself. And I want to invite you to come with me into the homes of strangers, to the places where people saved her life, where a story of war is experienced by the next generation. But first, I want to introduce you to my grandmother, Hannah Dubova. Dubova means oak tree in Czech. My grandmother was strong like an oak tree. She knew that too. I am extremely independent. I uh, make my own decisions. I take my own consequences. When my grandchildren says, you know, this isn't fair, life isn't fair, I says, nobody told you life is fair. Life is not fair, but you have to deal with it. I grew up far from my grandmother in Boston, but I went to college in Philadelphia, and it was during these years that my grandmother and I became close. She lived in the suburbs right outside the city. I had asked her one day if she would tell me her story. She asked me why I cared. She told me I'd heard it before. I told her I wanted to write it all down. Not the shorthand version, which she put like this. Somehow for the good or for the bad, it always worked out for me. Not always pleasantly, but it worked out. Everything works out if you live long enough. I wanted the whole story. So that's what we did together. We told stories. She'd lie in bed underneath an oil painting of her mother as a young woman. I sat in a chair next to her, looking at the two of them together. She talked. I wrote. I thought that that was the closest we'd ever be during those fragile years at the end of her life. But then she died, and that's when our lives became entwined. Hannah died in 2010. In the years after her death, I uncovered an incredible archive of her life, 
She left behind boxes upon boxes of letters and photographs and diaries. They were preserved albums dating back to the 1920s and letters she sent to lovers. There were report cards and deportation papers and love notes from her parents censored by Nazis. Then amidst all of these papers, I found a plain manila folder. It had a note on it, written in red ink in her shaky cursive handwriting. She'd written my name. The note read, For Rachel, so you'll know a little about my life when I was your age. That's how it started. After that, I spent hours on my bedroom floor reading her journals. Hours turned into days, into weeks, then years. I organized everything she left behind. I copied every word from every page. I rewrote every diary. I scanned every photograph. I became the curator of my own museum. I was captivated by her story. I don't know why. Maybe it was the journalist in me. For years, I did this. During this time, I moved back to Boston and was working as a photojournalist. I was living in a three-bedroom apartment with two girlfriends and traveled a lot for work. I've always had trouble staying in one place for too long. All of my friends were making bold decisions for themselves, but not the kind of decisions like kids in marriage. We weren't there yet. Some of them were moving to different countries and cities to follow their careers. Others were following romance. Some settled into more conventional jobs. You know, the kind that provides security and a steady paycheck. We were all just figuring it out. Barack Obama was president and change was happening. Life was moving and love was flowing. And my life was on the edge of exciting. So that's when I made a decision. It was 2014, four years since my grandmother died. I'd spent too many years buried in her story to not let it take me somewhere. So I decided to literally follow in her footprints. I decided I'd sublet my apartment, pack a backpack, and go live in every country she lived in. I would travel the way she did. I'd try to live life as closely as I could to the way she did. And I would track down all the characters from her journals, all the names listed in her letters and documents. I would try to find the people who saved her life. How do you feel about this week, Sergio? Are you making a video or series right now? Mm -hmm. I want you to open the last one and tell me how you feel about more of the fried cheese. I feel morbid. You feel morbid? Yeah. Why do you keep eating it? Because it's so bad, but it's so good. I mean, it's not good. So there's this guy. This guy's name is Sergio. Sergio and I met in August in 2009 in Israel. It was just a month after my grandmother and I started our storytelling sessions, the year before she died. Sergio and I were both studying abroad at Hebrew University. It was one of the first nights at school, and we were sitting on this playground by the student dorms. We were searching for free internet because we hadn't set that up yet in our apartments. And it was that time of the school year where everybody's becoming friends with everybody else, but you don't quite know who will last. And we just hit it off right away. He was this quick-witted Polish guy. When we met, he was wearing a bright yellow t-shirt that had a cartoon of a clown vomiting a rainbow. We had a funny flirtation in the beginning of the year. We hung out a lot, and on occasion we would watch a movie and snuggle, kiss, but we never talked about it. And then sometimes we'd be walking in a crowd of people and be in the back, and like by mistake, but not really by mistake, we would hold each other's hand for like 10 seconds and then walk away. 
We developed this big group of close friends. We all came from different countries and spoke different languages. Some of us, like me, were Jewish. Others of us, like Sergio, were not. I think we were very much in love then, but we just weren't at that place in our lives. He was 21 and I was 20. We both had a lot of the world to see. But we always stayed close. Fast forward a few years to 2014, I told Sergio I was going to move to Europe to work on this documentary project. I told him I was going to retrace my grandmother's refugee story. I'd start in Prague to research the early years of her life. He was living in Poland then, and he immediately said he'd come see me while I was there. We began talking every day. We sent songs back and forth. The first song he sent me was Disclosure's Latch. I listened to it all the time. I was in Boston, he was in Poland. He didn't care about the six-hour time difference. He would stay up until like two in the morning so he could Skype me while I ate dinner. And within an hour of seeing each other in Prague, he said to me, fuck it, I think I'm in love with you. I said to him, I think I love you too. And it was decided, we were partners. That's what we called it, not boyfriend or girlfriend, partners. We told each other one day we'd have the same passport. The first night of our new relationship, we wandered Prague with some random Czech guys and drank homemade Slivovitz. I remember sitting on the grass of a steep hill. In the distance, we could see the old town square and the river. I whispered to Sergio, Isn't it wild that this is where my grandmother is from? On that trip to Prague, I visited synagogues and cemeteries. Every corner was a landmark. In museums and concentration camps, I found my family's name on the list of the murdered. I visited all of these places in the weeks after Sergio and I started dating. It felt like an obligation, like the first step on my journey. I had to acquaint myself with the darkness. I had to acquaint myself with my grandmother's loss. I felt guilty, though, because as I toured each of these places and took pictures, Sergio texted me. I smiled everywhere I went, I blushed in the face of death because I felt loved. The Holocaust is the most well-documented genocide from both the side of the perpetrators and the victims. Maybe that's why so many of us find it so fascinating. There are so many stories to study. I knew it was bad. But you know, nobody ever, 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 ever in the wildest dream thought about what we know today, about concentration camp. You know, horror movies existed, Frankenstein existed, but nobody would ever, ever, ever imagine anything like this, ever. It was beyond, beyond understanding, beyond comprehension. In this story, Hannah never sees her family again. They are deported to extermination camps. Her parents are murdered, so is her younger brother, and so were her grandparents, and her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, her neighbors, her classmates. But Hannah lives. She remains one step ahead of the Nazis at each turn. She is never deported. She is saved by the kindness of strangers. I became obsessed with this notion. Who are these strangers? What stories do they tell? What do they remember? Sometimes it felt like a puzzle. 
My grandmother did have a thing for patterns and dates. We've always said that she would have gotten a kick out of the date of her funeral. October 10th, 2010. 10, 10, 10. She had a thing for letters and for words and for languages. She spoke over six of them. In each country she lived in, she changed the spelling of her name. In Europe, Hannah was spelled H-A-N-A. In America, it was spelled H-A-N-N-A. And she didn't care when someone spelled it H-A-N-N-A-H. She always appreciated a good palindrome. I've been researching the story of this podcast for the past 10 years. There are a lot of patterns, a lot of recurring dates and places. There's one date in particular that haunts me, September 29th. This date changes my grandmother's life in 1938 and then again in 1943. And it changes my life in 2014 and then again in 2016. I didn't notice it at first. To be honest, it only became clear when it was all over. Maybe this date is just a coincidence. Maybe it's something more. Sometimes I don't think about it at all. Sometimes it's all-consuming. On September 29, 2014, I packed a backpack of clothes and a suitcase of camera gear and moved to Europe. I went on a pursuit of my grandmother's memory. At the time, I didn't recognize the significance of this date. I didn't intentionally continue the pattern. And I certainly didn't think that on another September 29th, one yet to come, one that seems so far in the future, September 29th, 2016, that I, myself, would meet death. Hey guys, it's Mishi. We'll get back to the story in just a minute. But I wanted to tell you about our new, members-only, private Facebook group. You all know we have a public Israel Story Facebook page. That's where we post links to our episodes, make announcements about shows, and all kinds of things like that. That page has more than 10,000 followers, and will continue to operate just as it has thus far. But that page is more like an online billboard a place where we talk to our fans. And we wanted to add a place where we talk with our fans. A place for a conversation to happen. Israel Story began as a podcast for friends and family. And we still see it that way. The only difference being that our family has now grown by a few hundred thousand people. And we want you, our community of listeners, to have an Israel Story home. A closed Facebook group where you can safely discuss new episodes and old ones, ask us questions, and form connections with fellow listeners from around the world. It's sort of the exclusive club of Israel Story fans. So, check out our new Israel Story community group on Facebook. We can't wait to meet you and for all of you to meet each other. Just head to Facebook, search for Israel Story, Look for the pinned post at the top of our newsfeed and join the group. See you there. This episode is brought to you by Kotel Amishpachot, the egalitarian Kotel. As you know, here at Israel Story, we've spent a lot of time this season thinking about the Kotel. 
And I can wholeheartedly recommend that next time you visit Jerusalem, you check out the egalitarian Kotel for Kabbalat Shabbat. I was just there this past Friday and had a very meaningful experience. If you go, you too will have the opportunity of welcoming in Shabbat at the most symbolic of Jewish locations, and doing so with a beautiful service alongside your spouse, daughters, sons, granddaughters, grandsons. As the sun sets over Jerusalem, everyone is together, singing stunning melodies and partaking in a traditional service. The tefillot at Robinson's Arch, on the southern end of the Kotel, take place every Friday evening. For more information and prayer times, check out the Facebook page, Kabbalat Shabbat, at the Egalitarian Kotel. This episode of Israel Story is also brought to you by Avery Books, publishers of Sababa, by Adina Sussman. Named a Best Fall 2019 cookbook by the New York Times and Bon Appetit magazine, Sababa shares the vibrant flavors of Israeli home cooking in all its staggering, delicious variety. With 125 recipes, vivid photography, and stories that transport you straight to Adina's life, living and cooking in Tel Aviv's Shuka Carmel Market, Sababa is the perfect Hanukkah gift for the foodie in your life. Get a copy at your favorite bookstore today. And now, Back to the story. As you'll recall, before the break, Rachel Sarati, the Boston-based photojournalist, was about to set out in her grandmother's footsteps. Here's Rachel. My grandmother once told me the difference between her travels and mine was that she had to burn all of her bridges as she moved forward. The bridge always burned. Or was destroyed. There was nowhere to go back again. Once you made another step, you couldn't step back. On September 29th, 2014, I moved to Europe. First, I went to Poland to see Sergio. He gave me a home base during my travels, someone to come back to. In the back of my head, it felt unfair. I had support when my grandmother didn't. I was supposed to be doing this alone. Then I went to Prague. I moved into the home of a stranger, a young woman from the Jewish community who was kind enough to let me live in her spare room. If I was going to live the way my grandmother did, I had to rely on people the way she did. The nightmares came quickly. I dreamt I came home to Boston, and my friends looked through me like I was a ghost. One night, I woke up certain that the building was on fire. My body burned. I ripped off the blanket. I curled my legs to my chest and rocked back and forth like the Orthodox men I'd seen in prayer at the old synagogue earlier that week. It was just the beginning of my trip, and already the loneliness was so deep. Already, I couldn't exactly explain to anyone what I was doing or why. I had no money. I'd given up my home. I'd separated myself from my friends. I felt isolated from everyone, even Sergio. It was just me and my grandmother. But I was committed to her and her story. It felt more important than anything, even my relationship with Sergio. Even though these two commitments never came into conflict, I knew. September 29th, 
1938. It's a Thursday, and it's raining in Prague. Hannah's 13 years old. Her brother's nine. His name is Peter. They live with their parents in a modest second-floor apartment. It has a wraparound balcony that connects them to their neighbors and the communal toilet. It's a school day. Her father sits at the breakfast table and reads his favorite newspaper. It's written in German, the most influential liberal democratic newspaper in Czechoslovakia. The paper hides his face even as the corners fold over. Hannah reads the headlines on the other side. It says something about Hitler wanting a part of Czechoslovakia, but she's distracted by her own thoughts. She can't stop thinking about a boy, a boy named Dasha. We were waiting all very happily just now, about 20 minutes ago, at a rather threatening sky, but not a particularly bad one. Suddenly, rain began to fall, and it got harder and harder until the tarmac of the airport is skiddy and flooded, and everybody's looking very wet. When it's time, Hannah gathers her bag and takes the streetcar to school. She and her classmates bow to the teacher as they enter the classroom. Then they take their seats and sit straight with their hands behind their back. It's the mandatory posture. In history class, she learns about the Great World War, which feels ancient. She's taught that Czechoslovakia was created in 1918 at the end of that war. She understands that before her country gained independence, that it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And she knows that her father fought in this war, but it all feels irrelevant. It happened before she was born. Hannah goes directly home after school. She has to finish her homework before she can meet her friends at the gymnasium. And maybe, at the gymnasium, she'll see Dasha. She likes him so much. At the end of that normal Thursday, on September 29th, 1938, Hannah lies in bed. It's become common to fall asleep to the sounds of her mother shushing her father as they listen to the radio. They're listening to a news report. She hears the radio static, but can't make out the words. She closes her eyes. She tells herself stories built from today's memories. She narrates the stories with the words she keeps hearing from her parents and grandparents. It can never happen here. Now they bring her up. The police are coming forward. And the Lord Chamberlain is to be seen down there waiting to greet Mr. Mr. Chamberlain. I believe he'll be the first person to meet him as he steps out of the machine. I want to thank the British people for what they have done. And next, next I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem, which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. Hannah didn't know it yet, but this is what happened on that September 29th, the Thursday in 1938. There was a conference held in Munich, Germany. Hitler had now been in power for five years. It had only taken him the first six months to consolidate power. He turned a democracy into a one-party dictatorship, He drafted emergency legislation that suspended civil liberties. He got rid of habeas corpus. He deputized the stormtroopers. He targeted communists, socialists, state delegates, 
homosexuals, Jehovah's Witness, the mentally disabled, Germans of African descent, and Jews. He overfilled the jails, and then used schools and gymnasiums for his prisoners. And then, when those were over capacity, he built concentration camps. He murdered his opponents, he burned their books, and he amended the German constitution and gave himself emergency powers. All in six months. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. In 1938, Hitler annexed Austria. Now, he was demanding to take control of a German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia, called Sudetenland. He was threatening a European war if he didn't get what he wanted. So, his fellow Europeans complied. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. The leaders of Great Britain, Italy, and France signed what was called the Munich Agreement. They agreed to let Germany annex a part of Czechoslovakia. In exchange for Hitler's pledge of peace, they gave away their neighbor. The Czech government wasn't even invited to attend the negotiations. Everyone knew what this meant. At least everyone in Czechoslovakia knew what this meant. The Munich Agreement, the loss of land, getting annexed by Germany. This was a death warrant. We were told there's going to be a war, and so we were exercising with gas masks and how to crawl under the school desks and so on. That's Hannah again, my grandmother. Because we were told that either the English are going to gas us or the German are going to gas us. Somebody is going to gas us. The Nazis paraded into Prague six months after the Munich Agreement was signed. Czechoslovakia was no more. Everybody was trying to get out. Even my parents were trying to get out. Everybody was looking for a relative outside of the German Reich, and my grandmother had a stepsister in Cincinnati, Ohio. So Hannah's father wrote to this relative. He asked them for an affidavit, basically a pledge of financial sponsorship, if he could get them to America. This would help them get a visa. And they said, it's not so easy for us. And I knew that they were trying to get out. We all were trying to get out, and I told that I should learn the body knitting machine, that I should learn how to knit sweaters on the knitting machine so we could make a living wherever we would immigrate to. Hannah's mother was reschooling herself in baking and sewing. Everyone was prioritizing learning a trade. And the country which they applied to said, no, no, no. That one country, they said, we are going to go to Uganda. Uganda is the country which wants you, which could take you, not wants you, but could take you. And I wrote it on UGA, look at that, the Atlas couldn't find that country nowhere. 
find out that's way in Africa, but it never came to pass, they never left. Uganda was just one of many places proposed by the Zionist movement as a homeland for the Jews. Centuries of religious persecution were now enclosed by Hitler's propaganda, and the Jews of Europe were desperate for a solution. The anti-Semitism had been subtle before. We were always taught not to make waves. We were taught blend into the woodwork if somebody calls you some kind of a name, you know, dirty Jew or something. That was about the worst. We never were physically beaten up. We were taught, let it pass, let it go. I think the parents went through it, the grandparents went through it. They survived, so they felt, you know, don't answer, don't go back, don't fight for yourself. After the Nazi occupation, anti-Jewish laws were put in place quickly. Ghettos, ration cards, the freezing of financial assets, restrictions on professions for the parents and education for the kids. The social and financial rights of the Jewish community were stripped. The war came to me in coming to school and saying Jewish students are forbidden, not not permitted, but forbidden, to enter these premises. That's how the war came to me. Czechoslovakia didn't exist anymore. We were the protectorate of the German Reich. That was in March, 1939. Hannah turned 14 the following July. And there was a boy whom I liked. I got kissed the first time on my 14th birthday under the table, and that was in Prague. The story goes that Hannah dropped her fork at dinner. When she went to pick it up, her crush, Dasha, met her there and kissed her. It was quick. And I thought that I never wanted to crawl from under the table I'm going to beg because everybody's going to see that I've been kissed under the table and I really wanted to be with him. No one knows what is going to happen within the next 24 or 48 hours. I don't think that either Chamberlain or Hitler really know at this minute. Jan Masaryk, the Czech diplomat in London. But one thing is very definitely sure. If the war starts, it will be Hitler who is the guilty party. Everything was changing. Hitler had lied. Sudetenland, the part of Czechoslovakia he got in the Munich Agreement, was just the tip of the iceberg in his quest to conquer Europe. Now, there were threats of other countries being occupied. We may have war even before I finish this little talk, or we may have another attempt at negotiations. If there is even a vestige of the Munich spirit left to initiate these negotiations, they are doomed to be a dismal failure. The only possible chance of success without bloodshed is for Hitler to climb down from the Trojan horse on which he has galloped from Munich to Berlin and then to Vienna, Memel, Prague, and so forth, and now towards Warsaw. From now on, he must walk, even walk backwards a bit. Let me be perfectly frank. I believe I have the right to be so. If Hitler attempts another bloodless victory for vulgar gangsterism, and the world, including the United States of America, let him get away with it. I have no illusions about the future of the European civilization. And what's more, we all deserve what is coming to us. Five days later, 
Germany invaded Poland from the west. A couple weeks after that, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east. The war had begun. It was obvious now. Neither Hannah's family nor Dasha's family would be able to get out. But there were some options for the children. Rescue missions were set in motion. The kinder transport is probably the best known. That was organized by the British and saved about 10,000 Jewish children by bringing them to England. In America, a senator from my home state in Massachusetts proposed a bill to Congress for a similar plan in the United States. But public opinion said no. The wife of the U.S. Commissioner of Immigration, who happened to also be the cousin of President Roosevelt, publicly stated about the Jewish kids, quote, 20,000 charming children would all too soon grow into 20,000 ugly adults. Such racism didn't feel unique at this time. Walls were being built around borders. In the cases of some countries, like Czechoslovakia, the walls kept people in. And in other places, like America, the walls were built to keep people out. But Hannah was lucky, and so was Dasha. They were members of the Zionist youth movement, and that gave them an option to leave. Let's go, let's go to Hakshara. Hakshara means preparation to toil the land in Palestine, if the British would allow that. The Zionist movement applied to an organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And it was because of them that my grandmother's group of friends was saved. I hate to know the backstory of this. I found, did you know the story behind all this? I, I don't know. Either way, it might be a different story. Okay. To hear your it was so amazing one time. I, I That's Ava Bergman, Dasha's daughter. Dasha, Hannah's first love. Our families have been friends for four generations but I only got close with them when I started researching my grandmother's life. On this day, we are sitting with her brother Michael and his son. We're at Michael's home in Copenhagen, eating cake and drinking tea, while reading the letters and memoirs written by Hannah and Dasha. So here's the story. I, I have lived a lot in, abroad, and one time um, there was a little private library in the place where it was. It was a big place with a lot of people, and I think someone put it by my door, uh, female saints, east and west. And then it spoke about all these um, women who were really amazing women in Christianity and Hinduism and all this stuff. And then there was one little chapter about um, Judaism and said, in, in Judaism there are no saints. It doesn't exist. But there's one woman, if there should be, who should... And, she went with her dad to Palestine, like maybe a hundred years ago, a little bit earlier than that. And there was no infrastructure. There was a lot of malaria and it was really, really poor. And so she took it upon herself to help people. And so what she did, she went back to the U.S. and raised money to educate some nurses. This woman, Henrietta Zold, was born in Baltimore in 1860. At the age of 49, she began campaigning to establish health and social welfare services for the Arabs and the Jews of Palestine. This was her life's work, and it extended to protecting the persecuted children in Europe during World War II. As Ava continues the story, you can hear her brother Michael murmuring responses in the background. And what happened was, when Hitler took over, she realized that she couldn't 
save everyone, but she could try to save the children. And at that time, the British had a, a deal with the Ottoman Empire that there could only be this many Jews coming to Palestine a year. Mm. Yeah. And so she made a deal that a part of this would be children. So they went to Denmark, and from there they would then go to Palestine. I was one of the chosen ones. I learned later that you were not just picked to go. The parents paid quite a large sum of money to get their children out. My brother couldn't go because he was young, too young. My grandmother said it was like receiving a lottery ticket to be allowed to leave. We stood in front of the Gestapo for night and days to get exit permits to leave. The war already was declared. But we did leave. We did go by train through Berlin to Denmark. Hannah had no idea that this would be the beginning of nearly two decades as a stateless person. It was just the first stop in her refugee story. I, for one, thought that I'm entering a big adventure. I was really sort of almost happy that I, at this age, am going to this adventure, being alone and going to a strange country and going to make it on my own. I um, never believed, and I don't think they ever believed, that this is the last time that we see each other. In Prague, I spent hours at the train station. I watch the trains come and go and imagine Hannah's departure. I see it in a string of black and white snapshots. Hannah's head peeking out of the train window, her family on the platform. She waves at them furiously. Her mother wipes her eyes with a handkerchief. Her father stands with one hand on his wife's waist, the other hand on his son's shoulder. No one is sure what comes next. I imagine all of the parents as they stand there. They exchange glances, seeking approval from each other. They need to know that they're doing the right thing by saying goodbye. They need to believe it's safer to send their children into the unknown than to have them stay home. The grief fills the station like a thick fog. The whistle blows. The train jumps forward. It begins to move, first slowly, then faster, and now to full speed. The still frames of the train become a blur, but Hannah's parents remain frozen. They are the last frame in Prague. Rachel Sarabi. Erica Lance co-produced. So Rachel, we just heard the first episode and a half of um, a seven-part series. What are people going to hear next? Yeah, so it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. I'll say that. Rachel's spectacular podcast, called We Share the Same Sky, documents her decade-long journey to retrace her grandmother's World War II story. 
You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also find it on Facebook and Instagram under Share the Same Sky. Each episode comes with photographs, videos, and a curriculum that can be used in the classroom. Learn more at sharethesamesky.com. We Share the Same Sky was made possible by the USC Shoah Foundation. Hannah's story is just one of nearly 55,000 testimonies of Holocaust and other genocide survivors and witnesses in their archives. It's also supported by Echoes and Reflections, a program for Holocaust education throughout the United States. Now that you've heard the first episode and a half, I'm absolutely sure you'll run to download the rest of the series. I listened to it in one go, episode after episode after episode, and I simply cannot recommend it enough. It's a true work of art, poetic, informative, enthralling, and just like the best binge-worthy TV series, it's full of countless twists and turns that will rattle your soul. So, go and download it. We share the same sky. You can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And there's something really simple you can do right now that will make a big difference. We've already more than doubled our audience this season, and it is, in large part, thanks to you. In the Apple-centric world in which we live, the single best way for a podcast to grow and reach new ears is to have as many reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts as possible. So if you like our show, go to Apple Podcasts, give us those five shiny stars, and write a rave review. It's easy, it works, and it literally takes less than a minute. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Shai Satran, Maya Kosove, Roy Gilron, Joel Shupak, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. James Fader and Niva Ashkenazi are our wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from The Podglomerate is our marketing director. Sela Weissblum mixed the episode. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a new Israel Story episode. So, till then, Shalom Shalom. Yalla bye. Shuvah o benai 
לא גמור לו עוזב המגע בידייך שיבוא ויאיר למשמע קול צחוקי ממעמקים קראתי אלייך, אוי אליי מול ירח מאיר דרכך שוב אליי, נפרסו ונמסו מול מגע של ידייך, באוזנייך לוחש שואל מי זה קורא לך הלילה, תקשיבי, מי שר בקול אלייך אל חלומך, מי שם נפשו שתהיי מאושרת, מי ישים יד ויבנה את ביתך. ניתן חייו ישימה מתחתייך, מי כעפר לרגלייך יחיה, מי יאהבך עוד מכל אוהבייך, מי מכל רוח רעה יצילך, מי מעמקים. דרכך שוב אליי, נפרסו ונמסו מול מגע של ידייך, באוזנייך לוחש שואל מי זה קורא לך הלילה, תקשיבי, מי שר בקול אלייך אל חלומך, מי שם נפשו שתהיי מאושרת, מי ישים יד ויבנה את ביתך, מי ייתן חייו ישימה מתחתייך מי כעפר לרגלייך יחיה, מי יאהבך עוד מכל אוהבייך, מי מכל רוח רעה יצילך, מי מעמקים.